Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This feel and look so different. It is so much more massive and all-inclusive to see people from all over the world taken to the streets or to do what I call getting in trouble. People now understand what the struggle was all about. Civil rights leader John Lewis reflecting there on CBS News on the differences between today's movement that we're seeing in the streets of America versus what he witnessed and participated in in protests and marches of the 1960s. Hello, everyone. I'm David Chalian, the CNN political director. This is The Daily DC. George Floyd's memorial service marked a second day of reduced tensions across America, but not reduced activism. The energy of the demonstrations around the country continued. This latest protest movement is an American tradition going back to the country's founding, quite frankly, and it shows no signs of stopping anytime soon. It's a level of mobilization that many observe has not been seen in America since the 1960s, prompting people to look to that past for lessons on what today's movement could potentially achieve. So joining me now to help us understand those lessons of the past, Elizabeth Hinton, an incoming professor of history, law, and African-American studies at Yale University. Professor Hinton, thanks so much for being here. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me, David. It's great to be here. Can you just first, from the outset, walk our listeners briefly through, which is, I understand, a huge ask here, but the protests of the 60s and how that compares to what we are seeing this week in America? Right. So what we witnessed in the 1960s, the March on Washington, Selma, Birmingham, were the outgrowth of decades of organizing and activism in the South, but also in northern cities to struggle against Jim Crow and de facto and de jure segregation. And in the 1960s, we have this real culmination of decades of activism that leads to the enactment of two monumental pieces of legislation, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, of course, and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. At the same time, however, the kind of underlying issues of socioeconomic and political exclusion remained even as Jim Crow was dismantled. And Beginning in the summer of 1964, we begin to see these episodes of urban uprisings or urban unrest, first in Harlem and then in 1965 in Watts, and really exploding by 1967 in Newark and Detroit. So these incidents of urban uprising, which involved looting, fire setting, the throwing of Molotov cocktails, and of course, police violence, 
police shooting at protesters, tear gassing protesters, very similar to the kinds of scenes that we're seeing today, happened alongside these nonviolent direct action protests. And like what we're witnessing, the demonstrations around George Floyd's killing today, the proximate cause of many of these incidents of urban unrest was police violence, beatings or killings of black residents in urban areas. But the underlying kind of the root um, of what these demonstrations were about were calls for greater socioeconomic inclusion. And I think that's that's really what people are taking to the streets today for. Now, one thing you heard from uh, John Lewis at the top of the podcast, who was talking about what he often uh, refers to as getting into good trouble. Barack Obama, former president of the United States, said something similar this week about the difference of the makeup of the protesters. I want you to hear what the former president said and get your reaction. You look at those protests, and that was a far more representative cross-section of America out on the streets, peacefully protesting. And who felt moved to do something because of the injustices that they had seen. That didn't exist back in the 1960s, that kind of broad coalition. What do you make of that, Professor Hinton, that observation that there's a broader coalition, a more diverse coalition, if you will, in the streets this week than we saw back in the 60s? Yeah, I mean, I do agree with Barack Obama. I have been similarly moved by the interracial character of these protests and kind of the broad mobilization and the new discussions that are happening among white Americans about ways to deal with racism and ways to actually shoulder that burden. But I, I do think that we should remember that, you know, the, the protests of the 1960s were also interracial, that, you know, part of what led to the success of many of those movements was kind of building participations with a broad swath of American society. So this is a longer tradition, but there are some important distinctions about what we're seeing today. In addition to the kind of interracial character of the protests, you know, what is true is the urban uprisings that I mentioned in black communities were for the most part, the participants were black residents. You know, in some cities, took on a more interracial kind of swath of participants, including places like Detroit. But for the most part, you know, the, the people who participated in those incidents were African-American. So that is one difference. The kind and most of those incidents took place in low-income urban communities. So one of the things that I think is really unprecedented is the extent to which we're seeing property damage, not in segregated communities, but in segregated black communities, black and brown communities, but in more affluent um, white and middle-class communities. And we're witnessing the destruction of private property and looting against major multinational corporations. That is something that is really distinct in our own historical moment. Obviously, there was lots of civil rights legislation that grew out of the social movement of the 60s. Is it your assessment of history that the marchers, the protesters, the fighters for equality in the 60s achieved their desired outcome at the time? Because I'm trying to understand in today's movement, are are there lessons to be learned from that about how today's protesters in the streets can achieve the goals that they're looking to achieve? Right. That's a great question. I mean, I think had they achieved what they were looking for, which was full economic, political, and social participation and inclusion in American society and institutions, we would not be where we are today. We would not have George Floyd and other black and brown Americans dying at the hands of police. You know, I think 
because of the unanswered legacy and the unfinished questions, I mean, really of slavery and reconstruction going back to the 1860s and the continued resistance towards investing the kinds of resources and the commitment that it's going to take to really tackle the problems of racial inequality. These demonstrations and their more violent undercurrents will endure. So, you know, at this point, I think it's really promising that the demonstrators are keeping the pressure on. I tell my students, you know, never in the history of the United States did policymakers make fundamental change kind of out of the goodness of their hearts. It really does take organizing, mobilization and dedication on the part of activists to keep the pressure on. And and I hope that we see these protests continuing until the people get the meaningful change that they're looking for. Yeah. But as you noted Any sort of social movement success in this country throughout history does require broadening out the coalition beyond just the people who actually are the uh, activists that walk out their door and walk into a march and, and walk into the streets. I don't think you'd be able to point to any social progress and movement in the history of the United States that didn't have to not just keep up the pressure on policymakers, but actually alter public opinion broadly. Yeah, I definitely agree. You know, building coalitions is really going to be important and it's going to take a worldview and a seed change in our society in order to rid ourselves of the virus of American racism. But having said that, I think it's really important that as we think about ways that we can reinvest some of our resources in order to build this more equitable society, it's key that the most marginalized and isolated among us have access to those resources and have power to decide how those resources should be allocated within their own communities. We'll be right back with a lot more from Professor Elizabeth Hinton. Welcome back to The Daily DC. We're back with Elizabeth Hinton. You had mentioned the hand-in-hand images, right, of peaceful protests, but also police violence. You know, we just, even as we're in the midst of this fallout from the killing of George Floyd, we see yet again video emerging, this time in Buffalo, New York, 75-year-old protester getting shoved to the ground by police. The power of these images on video in today's world You know, that wasn't accessible to everyone in the 60s. There were the big three newscasts, perhaps, and they could see images Mm -hmm. of that. But now this instantaneous video in everyone's hand and you see a moment like that, does that not have a huge impact on the nature of these protests? Well, I think it helps build awareness among the American public about these injustices. And, you know, during the 60s, these kinds of images of police violence against nonviolent protesters really key. Bull Connor and the use of fire hoses among young children really galvanized many, especially white people in the North, as to the kind of horrors of Jim Crow and the segregationist regime in the southern states. So I do think, you know, on the one hand, I am of the mind that there is a danger in kind of, you know, especially if we're thinking about the videos of police killings like George Floyd's death and Eric Garner's death and many others, 
that, you know, we need to be careful about how we're viewing those films and, and kind of the impact of seeing again and again black bodies being beaten by state authorities. But I do think that we're beginning to grapple with and these images are coming to light to begin new conversations about the nature of American policing and really the aggressive tactics that are used in many low-income urban communities every day, but that become a kind of different part of our consciousness when we see them against protesters in these kinds of exceptional moments. As we look back to the 60s and beyond, it's not just the civil rights progress that was made, but there was sort of a counter pressure, counterweight on a push for more tough on crime policies, many of which helped contribute to the systemic racism we're talking about today. Can you sort of walk us through that push and pull in American history? And if you see that on the horizon today as well. Right. I mean, that push and pull was literally kind of the locus of Johnson's Great Society, right? You had the kind of carrot programs to the war on poverty, job training programs, remedial education programs, the expansion of welfare benefits, and then the stick programs, right? Johnson's War on Crime. And the beginnings of an in, a federal investment in police, courts, and the prison system for the first time in United States history. And unfortunately, as this, the period that I mentioned of urban violence, urban uprisings continued throughout Johnson's presidency and in the 60s, increasingly federal policymakers reallocated some of the investments that they had made to the war on poverty towards fighting the war on crime. And eventually, you know, the goals of the war on, on crime, the programs of the war on crime won out over the social welfare intervention that had been waged by the federal government. And, you know, in many cases, again, this policy choice to invest in more policing and surveillance and incarceration at the expense of employment programs and educational resources and housing protections has led us to the place in many respects that we see ourselves today, where, you know, police departments assume in many cities more than half of municipal budgets. And I think, you know, this really makes clear that this policy path, the decision to kind of manage root problems of poverty and, and racial inequality with punitive programs has failed miserably. And now it's really time for us to think about a different set of options towards dealing with inequality in our society. You just mentioned Lyndon Johnson, of course, and I know you've written and researched extensively on the role of presidents in protest movements in this country. I'm just curious to get your thoughts, all your knowledge about Johnson and Nixon throughout that era. How do you compare that to what you're seeing with President Trump today? Well, I think, you know, Trump really embraced and returned to the kind of law and order politics of Nixon. But at the same time, you know, one of the things that I didn't know when I started doing this research is that in many respects, you know, Johnson was a law and order president as well. I think one of the differences is that he also was committed to investing in social welfare programs. However, some of those programs might have been misguided. And I think that Johnson, you know, hoped that his crime control intervention would be part of his kind of larger great society domestic programs that would improve American society. I think, you know, the launch of the war on crime during the Johnson administration planted the seeds of a new kind of federal investment and intervention that targeted black Americans for policing and punishment, and that when Nixon took office, he seized for a much more sinister 
purpose. You know, I think Nixon and Trump are not necessarily interested in solving the problem of poverty and racial inequality. And Johnson, however misguided, was interested in trying to alleviate poverty and racism in earnest. And that's not a part at all of Nixon or Trump's domestic agenda. Elizabeth Hinton, a professor of history, law, and African-American studies. Thank you so much for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. And a special thanks to our listeners as well. Remember, we publish a new episode every weeknight, so please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. While you're there, consider leaving a rating or a comment. It helps people find the show. And if you want to tweet about this podcast, we urge you to do so. Use the hashtag TheDailyDC. Stay safe. Stay healthy. We'll see you on Monday. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.